to be opening your Bibles to the uh, book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 2. Brother Hiram did not want us to get off a track, so he's out of town this week, but I'm supposed to sally forth. So we'll start in uh, chapter 2, 1 Corinthians. This chapter is basically divided into two sections, if you're taking notes. Uh, Verses 1 through 5 are Paul's reminder to the church at Corinth. And then uh, verses 6 through 16 are an examination of wisdom, uh, both at a human level and at a divine level. There are a couple of other things, and if we have the time this morning, we'll get to those. But I want to try and uh, exegete as much of the, of the scripture as we can to keep us on track. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of the power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so as we see Paul in this opening stanza of these first five verses of of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he basically is speaking to them as he did when he first visited them about uh, Acts chapter 18, verse 11, about A.D. 52. He was with them for about a year and a half and then went to Ephesus where he spent another three years, uh, Acts 20, verse 31. Notice, if you will, that when he says that he comes to them, and that's, this is what he's basically talking about, when I came to you, uh, that, that was recorded in Acts 18, 11. Um, He did not come with excellence of speech. He did not come uh, with wisdom. But he came declaring the one thing that he wanted them to understand and remember and implement in their lives as Christians, Jesus Christ and him crucified. In 2 Corinthians Chapter 10, verse 10, those who heard Paul speak characterized his letters as weighty and powerful. But in his bodily presence, Paul was weak and his speech was contemptible. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 10. So Paul was not a man uh, given to the speech or the wisdom that the Greeks were so characteristically interested in hearing. The Greeks emphasized the body or the man, the natural man. And they were very interested in these things. And Luke, in his gospel account, uh, his account is to the Greeks. And the Greeks characterized the ideal man. And Luke, in his account of the gospel, speaks of Jesus as the perfect son throughout his life, Luke 2.52. And so as we look at this opening, 
verse or verses of Paul's address to the, the church at Corinth. There is one thing and one thing only that he wants them to understand, and that his message comes directly from God. He has a singular focus, and that singular focus is Jesus Christ and the singular action of his crucifixion, the single most important act or deed that has ever been done in the history of the world. I disagree with my brethren who say that the resurrection is the most key event in the history of the world. Without Christ's crucifixion, there would be no resurrection. And so Christ's resurrection or Christ's resurrection is important, but nothing is more important. The single most important event that has ever occurred in human history is the crucifixion of our Lord. And that is what Paul has come to preach, Christ and him crucified, nothing else. And the fact that he is physically a weak man, subject to all the infirmities of life, and there has been grand speculation about Paul's weakness, whatever that may have been. Um, he may have had a nervous weakness. He may have had some, some type of ophthalmic uh, disorder with his eyes. He may have suffered from depression. We read about things in 1 Corinthians 4, uh, in Galatians 4, 2 Corinthians 10, 2 Corinthians 12, and, and in several other places in the Bible that his weakness did not prevent him from preaching the word. But it did to those who were not of the house of the Lord, the, those who were interested in the physical things of man. So you have a man who stands up in front of you, and he may not have the best vision. He may not be the best orator. He may not have the grandiose words that can get the message across. But he's a weak man, as we all are. But the fact that he preaches Christ and him crucified is the single most important thing, irregardless of how he looks. In weakness, Paul said, we are made strong, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10. He comes to them with fear and trembling. This is a phrase that Paul likes to use. Um, he uses it. He uses it many times. Uh, in fear and trembling, Second Corinthians seven fifteen, uh, he says his uh, his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all. How with faith and trembling you received him. Philippians 2, verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Again, in Philippians 2, 13, again in Ephesus 6, 5, uh, it, it, must remember, it must be remembered that Paul's first journey to Corinth in Acts 18 was a troubling journey. He was beset with many storms and, and troubled days as he went to preach to this church in its early days. So his preaching and his speech were not with the persuasive words that the Greeks were used to hearing. Again, 2 Corinthians 10.10 10 says, you know, he brought, he brought very persuasive letters, but look who's the guy, who the guy is that brought him to us. He, he, was a weak, he was a weak man. But his strength did not lie in human wisdom. His strength did not lie... In any of these things, his strength lay in his demonstration of the spirit and power. And if you look at verse 5, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In the next chapter, he says that Christ is the foundation. No other foundation can any man lay than Jesus Christ. And so Christ is the foundation. 
And the crucifixion of Christ is the centerpiece of that foundation. And so in the sixth verse, he begins to, uh, he begins to lay out the difference between a wisdom that is of men and wisdom that is from God. And really, if you look at verses 1 through 5, if you stop and think about it, this is the portrait of a faithful gospel preacher. They're not perfect. They may not come with grandiose words. They may preach a very simple gospel. But that gospel has the power to save. And it's not the messenger, it's the message. And so... In verses 1 through 5, if you, if you care to look at it more or less as an aside, look at this as the portrait, the picture of a faithful gospel preacher. They don't come preaching grandiose words. They don't come preaching anything but Christ and him crucified because Christ is the focal point of everything. It's the centerpiece of everything. And so as we move to verse 6, what we see is we see this wisdom. We see this wisdom that is shared by those who understand Christ's life, who understand his suffering, who understand what happened to him and the message that he brought of a kingdom. Look at verse 6. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature. Some of your versions may say we speak it among those who are perfect. And here Paul is talking about those who are full grown, who are Christians. He's speaking to the Christians at the church of Corinth. These are the ones who are mature. Yet these are people who are wise with a wisdom other than the wisdom of the Greeks, the wisdom of the age, if you will. And so he talks about those who are not wise or not mature because they have a wisdom of this age. They have a wisdom of the rulers of this age. And he says that their end will come to nothing. They're not wise in the things that they need to be wise in because they are wise in the things of the world. And so he juxtaposes these two wisdoms, the wisdom that man has and the wisdom that we have as Christians, that higher wisdom, if you will. The true wisdom that belongs to a full and mature Christian. But he says the world's wisdom at the end of, cha- at the end of verse 6, that wisdom's coming to nothing. It will end up coming to nothing. In verse 7, he talks about the wisdom of God as being a mystery. And as he looks at the mystery that was the gospel, that wisdom or that mystery that, that angels desired to look into but did not know what it was, that from the foundations of the earth this mystery had been spoken of by the prophets of old. This mystery was veiled to those who could not see or who could not hear, who did not understand. But now to those who have been exposed to the gospel of Christ and responded to it by becoming Christians, now they understand with, a, with that perfect wisdom, that mature wisdom. But the wisdom of God is a mystery. It was a mystery. It still existed as a mystery to those who did not understand the simplicity of the gospel message. The hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, in verse 7. Continuing in verse 8, the, the, rulers, the rulers of this age don't know about it, for none of the rulers 
of this age knew. For they had known, for if they had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. These paragons, these paragons of wisdom, these people who are wise with the wisdom of men, if they had known about this, they would not have crucified the Son of God. Isaiah foretold this very disposition seven centuries earlier in Isaiah 64, verse 4. The elements of God's plan were not subject to human knowledge, to human understanding. It would take that divine revelation to bring about the full consciousness of understanding. And those within the Corinthian church that were mesmerized by the smooth talk of the philosophers of the day, the Stoics, the Epicureans, all of those, those who were mesmerized by that human wisdom should take note of the fact that this wisdom is wisdom from God. It's not from man. As it is written, verse 9, and he quotes parenthetically Isaiah 64, 4. I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those, for those who love him. And so for those who love him, the mystery is revealed in the gospel, in the four accounts of the gospel. And so these expressions, God has revealed them to us through his spirit. It's a, it's a revelation that is not of man. It is a revelation that has come from God because the spirit in verse 10, the spirit searches all things. That's a metaphor for the omniscience or the omniscience of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that guides us. It is the Holy Spirit who guides us through the word to understand this mystery, to understand the simplicity of the gospel. There is, in its most simplistic terms, there is a distinction between the things of the world and the things of God. Paul declares that these things have been revealed to us by God through the Spirit, and the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. Verse 10. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of a man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God. I don't know this morning what you're thinking because I'm just a man. I don't know what anyone else thinks, but God knows. The Spirit knows. The Spirit knows those things that are revealed. The Spirit searches all things. No one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. But we've received not the spirit of the world. So now here again, he's making that distinction. Christians have not received the spirit of the world. But Christians have received the spirit of God. Now we have received, verse 12, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit that is from God. That we may know the things that are being, that have been freely given to us by God. These things don't come to us by feelings. These things don't come to us as hunches. These things don't come to us as, as something in the night. These things don't come to us as through some direct revelation of the Holy Spirit to us. The Lord spoke to me and said, the Lord spoke to my spirit. Because in the very next verse, he says, these things we also speak. God does not speak to people through hunches. 
God does not speak to people through visions. God does not speak to people today through inferences or through these these feelings. Well, I have this feeling that I need to do. God does not speak to us. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. God spoke to us in earlier times through the prophets, but now he speaks to us through what? He speaks to us through his word. So you can set aside all of the things that man says that God speaks to him directly, or God spoke to me and gave me this, God put this on my heart, God put this in my spirit. No, he didn't, because God speaks to us now through his word, Hebrews 1, verse 2. And so as we look at this, there is a clear affirmation. There is no more clear affirmation anywhere in Scripture for the doctrine of verbal inspiration. If the words of the Bible are not inspired by God, there's no inspiration at all. But we know that they are inspired because they are God-breathed. And so... These things that we speak, we speak them not in words, which man's wisdom teaches, but with what the Holy Spirit teaches, and that is through the Word of God, that sword of the Spirit that we take up daily, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. We compare spiritual things, verse 13. Those things we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. So we're not to rely on the wisdom of men were to rely on the word of God, that spiritual sword, comparing spiritual with spiritual. And so in verses 14, 15, and 16, now he begins to talk about what, what's called, what he calls the natural man. So he's making here a very clear distinction between the natural man and the spiritual man. Now, we know if we read in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Paul talks about three distinct parts of the human. There is the body, there is the soul, and there is the spirit. There is the pneuma, there is the... I can't. I, I, I forget my. I forget my Greek sometimes. There is. Anyway, he talks about those three: the body, uh, the spirit, and the soul. And he talks about the soma, the pneuma, and what's the third one? <laughs> Edwin. What's the third one? Anyway, Paul talks about these three in First Thessalonians five twenty-three. So what are what are the distinctions? What are those distinctions? Because he's talking about the natural man here, and so it's good that we understand what the natural man is. The natural man is composed of three things: he's composed of the body, he's composed of the soul, and he's composed of the spirit. The three things. He mentions those specifically in, in, in 1 Thessalonians 5:23. Well, the body is the carnal. The body is the fleshly. The body in the Greek was the, the body was that you lived your life for yourself. You lived your life for the body. That was the fleshly portion. The soul is that natural man, that egoistic, that unspiritual. And the spirit then is the spiritual that he's talking about in these terms. And what he's talking about here is the natural man not receiving the things of the Spirit of God. Why? Because the natural man, the worldly man, the one who depends on the wisdom of men, has allowed that spiritual component to atrophy. 
He's allowed that spiritual component to die of neglect. And so the natural man does not see the things of God. And you think about all of your friends today who are, uh, who are not religious in any way. Uh, maybe they, they, they may, you may interact with people who are atheistic. You may, you may uh, interact with people who are agnostic. All of these people have allowed the spiritual portion of their bodies, their, their lives to atrophy through neglect. And so they don't see the things of God. They're blind. They have eyes that can't see. They have ears that can't hear. They're, they're like a painting to a blind man or music to the deaf. They simply can't hear it. They simply can't see it. They can't, simply can't understand it. And so what Paul says here, the natural man doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God because they're, they're blind. That component of their life, that, that one of three parts is, is, is dead or neglected or atrophied. For they are foolish. They're foolishness to them. You've talked to people in, in, in Bible study settings. You've talked to people in, in door-knocking campaigns if you've gone out on those. And you've talked to people who think that, well, what the, this is foolishness. This is foolishness, what we do. And that portion of their life has died of neglected, died of, of atrophy. This foolishness, what we do. It's foolishness to them. Nor can he know them because they are not able to spiritually discern these things. But the one who is spiritual, the one who is mature, the one who is a Christ-like work in progress, if you will, he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. He concludes this chapter by saying, Who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And so I want to spend just a few minutes today talking about that. I want to spend just a few minutes talking about the mind of Christ. And if you will, going back to some remarks that I made at the very beginning, I said that verses 1 through 5 really are a portrait, if you will, split this chapter up in a kind of a different way, look at it in a kind of a different way. Look at verses 1 through 5 as the portrait of a, of a true gospel preacher. What is the central goal, what is the central aim of any faithful gospel preacher is to preach Christ and him crucified. That's a central goal for any faithful gospel preacher. To a faithful gospel preacher, he is like Paul. He's determined to not know anything among you. To him, the life of Christ, the death of Christ is all the central focus. It's soul-absorbing. A true gospel preacher or a faithful gospel preacher is, is indifferent to all of the rhetoric that's around him. All of the rhetoric of the world makes no difference to him because he knows he's focused on that belief. And that's what Paul said. He came not with excellency of speech. No brilliant sentences, no polished, no polished prose. Just a simple approach to a simple gospel that can save the soul. This ministry that a preacher goes through, the ministry, is one where the consciousness of everything that's around him, he's conscious of his weakness. He's conscious of his abilities. He's conscious of his 
inabilities. He's conscious of all these things. He was like Paul. He was there in weakness and in fear and much trembling. The soul of a gospel preacher is a strong one. But he is to avoid the vanity that the praise and the adulation that goes along with being a preacher. It's a vile, it's a disgusting incongruity. And so, if you will, these first five verses really speak to the gospel preacher. If you look at verses 6 and 7 in this chapter, you look at the power of the gospel, the power of the message delivered, the description of the gospel, the description of the hearers, and the result of the hearing of the gospel. Paul calls, verses 6 and 7, he calls this the wisdom of God, the wisdom of a system can be determined by many things, by a personal manifestation, a human manifestation, a loving manifestation. These things are essential to a presentation of the gospel. And when when Paul says, we speak wisdom among those who are perfect, that's the rule for the preacher. And the word perfect here again, mature, those who are those who are advanced or advanced in the knowledge of Christ, in contrast to those who are babes in Christ, who desire that sincere milk of the word, those who are not yet old enough to eat the meat or get into the meat of the scriptures. And so a preacher must be obligated to the hearer to present a gospel that is a balanced gospel that both feeds the young, the, the, the new Christian, and also feeds the more mature. But also in these verses, it talks about spiritual ignorance. Spiritual ignorance has two outcomes. There's really spiritual ignorance that causes uh, the immense evil that occurs and the occasion for an immense good. If you look at the princes of the world that Paul talks about here, the princes of the world, through their ignorance, what did they do? They crucified the king of glory. And so in the crucifying of the king of glory, the, the, the grossest injustice that has ever been done to someone who they were totally, they had no gratitude for him because he came here to do good. That's all he ever did. And they hung him on a tree, the most heartless cruelty. They crucified him in a way that was the most excruciating death known to man. But who did they do this to? They did this to the Lord of glory in their ignorance. This kind of evil would only produce more of that evil. The the ignorance there is, is a calamity. But it is also, in Christ's death, the occasion for immense good. Think about divine pardon. Think about spiritual purity. Think about the hope of immortality. None of that would have happened without the death of Christ. And so as these sinners who killed our Lord ruined themselves, they opened up an avenue of forgiveness. They served God. They served the end purposes of God. Much as every evil, wicked man down through time has served the purposes of God. Some good has always come 
from some very bad evil. And so they served God. Contrary to what they wanted to accomplish through the crucifixion, they accomplished just the opposite. They accomplished hope. They accomplished pardon. They accomplished forgiveness. And they accomplished the hope of an eternity spent with God. And so if we look at the gospel preacher as he preaches, we look at the audience that he preaches to, the immense evil that is in the world and the immense good that can come from preaching God's word. If you look at chapter 2, really verses 10 through 16, we talk about that, that difference between the wisdom of men and the wisdom of God. What we're really talking about is a gospel school. A gospel school. But God hath revealed them unto us by his spirit. You know, there are all kinds of schools today that teach all kinds of worldly knowledge. Western Kentucky here in town teaches worldly knowledge to people. The University of Kentucky. All the other schools that come to mind on a college football weekend. They all teach the wisdom of men. They all teach that worldly knowledge that we need when we work in the world. But the one school that transcends them all is the school of the gospel. It transcends them all. Because, first of all, it teaches the most sublime reality. The deep things of God is what Paul calls them. He calls them the deep things of God. Not words, not theories, but the indescribable depth of the love of God in sending a son, a unique son to this world who did nothing but good and yet met the most cruel fate. Deep things of God come from that fathomless well of divine love, that love that caused him to send that son. What are those deep things? What are the deep things of God? The gospel elements, the hearing of the word, the believing of the word, the repenting, the confession, the baptism, the living for Christ after that. Those are the deep things of God. The necessary conditions for a soul's restoration. Those are the deep things of God. They are the free gifts. We've talked on many occasions about the gospel of Christ is a free gift. It's free. It's given without. It, it's not given with any any constraint. It's not given with any. It costs you nothing. But it costs you everything. Because to take hold of that prize, to take hold of that gospel, and to understand and believe and be converted by that gospel, you must surrender everything. You must surrender your will. You must surrender your pride. You must surrender you. To that one who died on the cross for you. So it's a free gift. But it's a free gift that costs you everything. So it's taught. This this gospel school teaches the sublimest realities. The deep things of God. But it's also taught by the greatest teacher. The greatest teacher. Who is that teacher? Well, Paul says here it's the divine spirit himself. The Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit. The spirit of God. Why is, he the, why is he the greatest teacher? He knows everything. He has infinite knowledge. 
The Spirit searches all things. He knows those things of God. He knows you. He counts the very numbers on your numbers. He counts the very hairs on your head. The teacher has infinite knowledge, and the teacher is none other than God himself. What man knoweth the things of a man save the spirit of man that is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. The implication is that this spirit is as truly God as man's mind is man. I can't know what you're thinking. You can't know what I'm thinking. But God knows all. He knows all. That makes him the greatest teacher. And so, as a student of this gospel school, what is our responsibility? Our responsibility is to develop that higher spiritual nature. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned, and he's not able to discern that, the natural man. Remember that man has that threefold nature, the soma, the psyche, and the pneuma, the body, the soul, and the spirit. The first is the animal, the second is the mental, and the third is the moral or the spiritual. If you let the spiritual atrophy, if you let the spiritual die, you are a man of, you are a natural man, not knowing, not discerning those things that are spiritual. For who hath known the mind of God? That mind of God. We are enjoined on many occasions to have the mind of Christ. What does that mean? What does it mean to have the mind of Christ? What is meant by that? We read about Christ. We read about his earthly ministry. We read about the stories that he told the Proverbs. We read about the things that he spoke of. But what does it mean to have the mind of Christ? I would submit to you that to have the mind of Christ would be to have a mind that sees the truth. That sees the truth. You know, Christ didn't reason out or accept authority just based on what he heard or saw. He, he looked those people in the eye. And he talked with him. He was naturally and perfectly acquainted with truth. And truth was all that ever came from his mouth. He saw the truth. So must we. He had a mind that loved the good. He saw things and always found the good. He had a mind that always chose the right. He had a mind that always was thinking and planning and suffering for all men. If we are to truly partake in that mind of Christ, if we are to consider what that mind was that Christ had and that he said that he wants us to have, we must truly see the truth, love the good, choose the right, and be willing to suffer. For our faith. What does that get us if we partake in this mind of Christ? What does that get us? We acquire that spiritual knowledge through reading the gospel, through reading the gospel accounts, through reading Paul's letters, 
which are 75% of the New Testament, are his letters to, are his letters to us. We consider what that mind is. We consider the Lord's words. We consider his conduct. We consider his suffering. These are all revelations of his mind. Let the mind of Christ be in you always. How can we prove to ourselves today that we have the mind of Christ? By judgment concerning those spiritual things that we talked about. We are not imbued with the wisdom of men. We are imbued with the wisdom of the Spirit, those deeper things, those higher things, those more more moral things that are talked about. And by a life of loving service with our Lord as our example. So as you go forth from this place today, have the mind of Christ in you as we go out into the community, as we go out into the world to talk about this Savior who died for us. Brother Hiram will be back next week, Lord willing. And he looks forward to seeing you then. Thank you very much.